Are you familiar with the term learning curve? Anyone ever heard that word before? There's oftentimes an adjective in front of the phrase learning curve. What is that adjective? Someone started, I heard the ST. Steep, there it is. A steep learning curve. And so there's this, there's this idea that when it comes to learning, uh, oftentimes it kind of starts slowly and then it begins to rise and you get into that steep learning part and finally you get to a, a plateau of learning where you've kind of got it figured out. Uh, anyone ever bought a new computer and found that was a pretty steep learning curve? Or anybody switch from like an Apple computer to another kind of computer or vice versa and found that, found that transition was incredibly difficult. Uh, have you ever bought a new piece of software that just absolutely drove you crazy trying to figure it out and learn how to use it? You know, we've all experienced that. I remember when I, when I bought the car I'm currently driving seven years ago. One of my friends, Dave, was the service manager at the Hyundai dealer where I bought the car. And so he was kind of, my idea was he was the shortcut. You know, if I had questions about this car and how to make it work and how to do this and how to do that, um, I would go to Dave. I said, Dave, I need help with this. I need help with that. And his standard answer every time was, have you talked to Tom? Not you, Tom. (laughs) He says, you need to ask Tom. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, Tom, T-O-M, the owner's manual. So I don't want to deal with the owner's manual. I want that learning curve to go like this real quick. Well, the Christian life is kind of a learning curve, isn't it? Can you remember back when you first came to faith? And the reality of Scripture is, if any man be in Christ, if any woman be in Christ, he or she is what? Brand new creature. Brand new creature. All things, you know, old things are passed away, all things are become new. And so, you come into the Christian life and, and there's all these differences. There's a different outlook on life. There's a different, a different value system. And you read things like, deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Follow me. Or you read other things like, forgive as I've forgiven you. And that's always easy to do, right? That, that, that's the deep learning curve for lots of us. Well, the disciples are on this learning curve somewhere. I'm not quite sure where they are as we come and join them again this morning. But this morning, I want you again, like I suggested last week, to instead of looking at this passage of Scripture and looking at what we're going to read in a moment, instead of looking at this as an outside observer, like you're watching a video being played, I want you instead to step onto the stage and become one of the disciples. I want you to try to see this through the eyes of those who were with Jesus. Those who were walking with Him, talking with Him, and they've been on this journey for almost two years. Can you do that? Put yourself on the stage. You're one of the actors. You're one of the players. Instead of simply viewing from afar. And so as we open our Bibles to Mark chapter 6 again, I want to take a look and take a step back again and read the passage that we looked at last week and then progress from there to the next passage because I think these two accounts in the life of Jesus belong together. And it's hard to separate them. And so I want you to see these two events as being connected. And I want you to be on the stage. I want you to be in the group. I want you to see it from their perspective. If you can do that. Probably a little easier if you're eight years old, right? By the time you're our age, that becomes a little more difficult. And so I'm going to jump back again into Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Remember, Jesus has sent them out on mission, right? Put them together in pairs, send them out, no money, no food, put your sandals on, wear a tunic, and go. And they've now come back, they're reporting into Jesus. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. It's time for R&R. Rest and recovery. And there were many people coming and going. And they did not even have time to eat. 
They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. So they get in the boat, trying to get away from the crowds of people. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities, and got there ahead of them. I just find this incredibly funny. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and and said, This place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And I suggested to you last week that Jesus gave them an impossible assignment. Completely, totally impossible. And if you were paying attention at all last week, the big idea that I wanted you to walk away with is this. Our God, how's the rest of it go? Specializes in doing the impossible. So he gives them the impossible assignment. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go Go look. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces. And also the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. And as I suggested, perhaps upwards of 15,000, 20,000 wives and children. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. While he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountains to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. And he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, some kind of apparition. And they cried out for fear. They all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke with them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loans, but their heart was hardened. And so there's three things that I want to kind of focus on this morning as we look at these two uh, stories. You, along with the disciples, because you're on stage with them now, right? You're in the boat with them. You've been at the hillside with the feeding of 5,000. You're there with Jesus. And so you're on this learning curve. Jesus, you, and the learning curve. The learning curve for the 12 included two supernatural events. Two miracles. Two amazing things that Jesus accomplished. He fed 5,000 people, maybe upwards of 20,000, with five small loaves about that big and two little fish. And not only did you, along with the 12, get to watch this happening, Jesus involved you in handing out the loaves and the fish and passing the map up. You were there. You saw this. It was part of your life experience. And then Jesus puts you in a boat, go across the Sea of Galilee, and this storm comes up, which happens quite often on the Sea of Galilee. It's situated at kind of a bowl with the hills here, the wind coming down, it frequently happens. Of course, a full third of those in the boat were professional fishermen, right? This wasn't their first rodeo. This wasn't their first storm. And the story tells us that they're straining at the oars, and what time is it? fourth watch of the night, and you probably have a marginal note that tells you that's sometime between three and six in the morning. So I'm trying to do the math. What time did they get into the boat to go across the lake? 
well, it was quite late. They could have been straining at the oars for six hours, eight hours, ten hours. I'm not sure. If it was closer to six o'clock in the morning, they've been out there a long time. You're in the boat with them, right? And you're straining at the oars. You're, you're... If you're in the boat with the disciples and there's a storm at sea, what should be going through your memory bank? We've been here before. Were we in a storm some time ago? And Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. Shouldn't you be remembering that event? And so you're straining at the oars, trying to get that boat across the other side. And here comes this guy walking on the water. How unusual is it for someone to walk on water? Well, I used to think that there was only one person who ever walked on water. But if you have access to the internet, you'll discover at least two examples of guys that were walking on water. And uh, Dave, if you want to bring those next two pictures up for us. So there's a guy right there. His boat is flipped over and he's getting out of the way running on the water, right? (laughs) And then there's this next picture. And this guy's kind of escaping from a little danger. And uh, he's walking on water. You realize that in the first century, they did not have Photoshop. So, Jesus comes walking on the water. Are you in the boat with the disciples? Are you straining at the oars? Is the wind blowing and the waves crashing? And this guy comes walking on the water? Are you surprised that they're terrified? Wouldn't you be terrified? What is going on? And so there's these two events thrown side by side in the life of Jesus and the life of the Twelve. Learning curve. Now, if, if you're a teacher and you have students that you want to learn, there's something that is essential to the learning process. Something that must take place in one form or another. What is it? Got to have instruction. That's correct, Steve. What else do you need to have? It's the word you don't want to say because you don't like tests either. A good teacher always provides tests. Why are tests important? They measure whether you've learned or not. And so, as I'm reading these things, I'm saying, you know, what Jesus is doing, he's been with these guys for two years, teaching them miracles, healing lepers, healing blind people, casting out demons. These are tests. In fact, John 6 tells us specifically, when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, this was a test for his disciples. Now he puts them in a boat out in the middle of the sea, and there's a second test. (laughs) And so as I thought about this, I thought, not only are these two miraculous supernatural events taking place in Mark's Gospel right side by side, but there's lessons that you, along with the twelve, should have learned on the hillside with the Demon 5000, and in the boat, in the storm. So let's, let's think about these separately for a minute. What should or could the disciples have learned on the hillside with Jesus when he fed fifteen to 20,000 people? What could they, what should they have learned? He can do anything. He can do anything. What, 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 what can Jesus do? Anything. Whatever he wants. In fact, I've heard rumors that he specializes in doing the impossible. What else should the disciples have learned and discovered on the hillside of Jesus? What's that? He takes care of people, right? One of the things that struck me, Janine, is that there's this perfect balance in Jesus' ministry that the disciples should have learned, where Jesus is balancing spiritual needs with physical needs. When he got out of the boat and saw all the people, what did Jesus do? He taught them. 
and then you fed them. And there's probably some lessons there for us to learn in our own lives and our interchange with others. There's spiritual needs and there's physical needs, and Jesus was fully able to meet and to care for both. What, what other lessons might they, could they, should they have learned on the hillside? Because one of the things that strikes me as I read that passage, it says that when Jesus got out of the boat and he saw the multitudes, his first thought was not, oh gee, we're supposed to be going for R&R. We're supposed to be going to a quiet place to rest, kick back, a little Dr. Pepper, a little jacuzzi, it's all going to be good, right? That wasn't Jesus' mindset, that was the disciples' mindset. What was Jesus' mindset? It says he had compassion on the people. And I, there's a lesson there that the disciples should have learned about priorities and personal agenda, what matters, what's important. Is my personal comfort, my personal convenience more important than the needs of the people that hear Jesus teach? (laughs) Is that a hard question to answer? There were lessons that the disciples should have, could have learned. And I wonder as I'm looking at this and trying to place myself in the story and trying to place myself among the disciples... Was I putting the pieces together? Were were the disciples putting the pieces together? Was it coming together and making sense for them? And then the second account, the account of the storm at sea, the disciples straining at the oars to get across the Sea of Galilee. What could they, what should they have learned in that experience in the boat? Anything similar to the previous story? Anything different to the previous story? (laughs) Faith and trust. Faith and trust, is that a big deal? That's a huge part of that story. You know, here they are straight into the oars and they're not making progress. If they've been out in the Sea of Galilee for six, eight, ten hours, they're going nowhere fast. And that storm is just raging on. And then Jesus appears and they're freaked out. The scripture says that Jesus saw them straining at the oars. And so I'm thinking on the one hand, well, if Jesus was up on the hill and he's looking out over the Sea of Galilee... Perhaps for a time, depending on how far they were in the distance, he'd be able to physically see them. But when the sun went down and it was dark, would he have been able to see them with his eyes? Someone say no, thank you. So, Jesus sees them in the circumstances they're in, the struggles they're having, the challenges they're facing. He knows what they're going through. Is that huge or what? Does Jesus know what you're going through? Absolutely. So Jesus not only knows what they're going through, Jesus could have, I think you'll agree with this next statement, Jesus could have precluded the storm from even happening. Right? He did not do that. He could have. He didn't do that. Jesus could have stopped the storm from up on the hillside. Right? He didn't have to be physically present to do that. He could have stopped it. But he, he didn't choose to do that. What did he choose to do? He t- choose He chose. To came down to come down onto the Sea of Galilee and walk on the water. Because it's his presence that gives us confidence, his presence that gives us courage, his presence that gives us hope, his presence that gives us help. 
Remember the story of the centurion whose son was sick and dying and, and the centurion came to Jesus and wants Jesus to come to his house and then the centurion says, you know, it just occurred to me, you don't really need to come to my house. You can say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus did not have to be physically present to calm the storm. But he chose to. Jesus could have precluded the storm from even happening. But he chose not to do that. Remember the story of Lazarus and his two sisters? They send word to Jesus, your friend Lazarus is sick. Jesus shows up four days after Lazarus has died. Four days. And Mary and Martha independently come to Jesus and say the exact same sentence because it's something they've been saying to each other for at least four days, I think. What is it that they said to Jesus? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. He could. He could have healed Lazarus from where he was. He chose not to. He came and it was his presence that made all the difference, right? And so I, I, I just think there's, there's lessons to be learned, lessons to... Um, one of you responded a few minutes ago about Jesus being there to help. And I wrote to myself, he could have precluded the storm, he didn't. He could have stopped the storm at any time, he didn't. He could have stopped the storm from a distance, he didn't. What did he do? Jesus showed up. And isn't, isn't that what you want in your life, what I want in my life? For Jesus to show up. For Jesus to be there, for Jesus to be present. And so I think th there's these life lessons, the learning curve that the disciples are on. And there's these life lessons. And there was a cartoon in the newspaper yesterday. I love cartoons. Some of you probably picked that up from Facebook. Um, this guy is standing in front of a vending machine. And it says, life lessons, 50 cents. And he's talking to his friend next to him and he says... It took my money and nothing happened. <laughs> That's life. You just learned life lesson. You know. <laughs> There's lots of lessons to learn in life. And for the disciples on the learning curve, it involved two significant supernatural events. That learning curve involved lessons they should have, could have learned. And for the disciples, that learning curve included failure. Failure. Is failure a bad thing? Eh, maybe sometimes. Um, sometimes you learn more out of failure than you do. <laughs> you know, I, I think of some of the sports teams I've played on where we have lost, lost a game and it was in the loss that the coach had the opportunity to teach us and to point us to what we needed to do differently and change to improve and do better. And so Jesus is testing the disciples. They're on this learning curve, and they fail. In fact, if you look at your text, it says they were utterly astonished. They were utterly astonished. And I'm in verse um, 52, 51 and 52. Jesus got into the boat with them. The wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished. Beyond That word utterly means beyond measure. Couldn't even measure how astonished they were. And that word astonished is two words that means they, they were outside of themselves. They were beside themselves. They were totally, totally astonished and amazed. What has just happened? It says they were utterly astonished for... Should they have been astonished? If, if your expectation of Jesus is that He can do anything He chooses, if your expectation of Jesus is He can do the impossible, if your expectation of Jesus is up here somewhere, and He calms the storm and, steps and walks on the water, you'd probably go, yeah, 
That makes sense. They were utterly astonished. But notice the next phrase. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loves. And that phrase, gained insight, is, is two words put together in the original language. To send together. They failed the test because they had failed to put the pieces together. They had failed to understand, to make, connect all the dots. They've been with Jesus for two years. Watch him heal, hear him teach. They just experienced these two incredible supernatural events. And the scripture says they failed to gain insight. What was the insight they were supposed to gain? What was it that they should have figured out? There's two things that kind of summarize for me and any answer you would have given to that question a moment ago would have been right. But there's two big things that they needed to grasp about Jesus. Two big things. The first thing they needed to grasp is who Jesus is. And it's fascinating to me that when he came walking on the water, he said, take courage, it is I. In the original language, it would say, take courage, I am. I am should ring bells, like big loud bells should be going off in your head. When you hear Jesus say the words, I am. I am the eternal God, the eternal creator, I am. They had not yet put the pieces together and fully figured out who Jesus is. They have been privileged to live, eat, walk, learn alongside of the eternal God-man, the creator of the universe, Jehovah of the Old Testament, God become man. He dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, right? John chapter 1. They still hadn't put the pieces together. It still wasn't connecting. Who Jesus is matters, right? Who Jesus is is important. And who you understand Jesus to be matters and is important. They hadn't figured it out. They, they haven't connected the dots and put it all together. So the first thing that they're struggling on this learning curve to get their hearts and hands and head around is who is Jesus? By the way, if you remember several weeks ago, months ago, whatever it was, when we saw Jesus calm the storm. You remember the story, right? Jesus was asleep on that cushion in the back of the boat. Boat's filling up with water. Disciples are freaking out. And they wake Jesus up. Don't you care that we're perishing? I've often wondered what they wanted Jesus to do. Help them bail water? And Jesus just stands up and hush, be still. Do you remember what the disciples said to each other at the conclusion of that event? Who is this man? You know, that's a good question to be asking, right, Steve? Who is this man? They still don't have it figured out. The other thing they haven't figured out is not only who Jesus is, but what Jesus can do. And, and you would think, after all these things that they've seen Jesus do, they would have it figured out. And of course, you and I are light years ahead of them, right? We've got it all figured out. We've got all the pieces put together. You know, we have it nailed, right? Well, maybe. You know, we have the ability of, of having this book in our hands. Why hadn't they been able to put the pieces together? What hindered them 
from learning the lessons that Jesus intended them to learn? Is anyone reading the text? Say it a little louder. Harden our hearts. They failed to gain insight from the incident of the loaves because their hearts were hardened. And I, I read that and I just kind of shake my head and go, these guys have been with Jesus for two years. That word, the hard heart, is an interesting word in the Greek language. It's a medical term. And it was used of... Um, What's ossific- I need my nurse's help here. Um, ossification takes place when a bone is broken. I broke my pelvis in 2008, and guess how that happened? Bike crash. There you go. And so Ed Trenner, those of you who know my friend Ed, ran me over, and uh, <laughs> my wife told me after that day I should only ride behind Ed, not in front of him. But that's another story. So. I wound up with a cracked pelvis, and I noticed several weeks later as it healed, if I, was, if I was laying down and tried to lift my leg, I could feel this ligament trying to slide where it normally slides, and it hits something and then pops over it. There's this hardened section where the crack in my pelvis healed, and the, if I understand medically what happens, help me here nurses if I got this all messed up, but it's like there's cartilage that's trying to become bone, and it becomes this little ridge where the bone heals. And the scripture and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uses this word hardened heart, of this hard surface. And so I'm reading this and thinking to myself, you guys, you've been with Jesus for two years. When you hear the word hard heart, who do you think of? Pharaoh, there you go. So in the Old Testament, it says of Pharaoh that his heart was hardened. It also says God hardened his heart. You have this hardening going on. Pharaoh was top dog, right? Pharaoh was top dog in Egypt. He was regarded as a god. And Moses and the ten plagues and everything that happened in Egypt was a challenge to his position, his prestige, his authority. His heart was hardened against what God wanted to do. There's another group of people in the New Testament that are said to have hard hearts. Yeah, take a while, guess, Pauline. The Pharisees. The Pharisees had hard hearts. And as I think about that, I think, well, they kind of had some common ground with Pharaoh in the Old Testament. They have position, they have prestige, they have status. And along comes Jesus, and he's shaking up the religious system. He's challenging their prestige, their position, their authority. And he's also challenging their expectation and desire that, hey, the Messiah we want is a guy that's going to overthrow Rome. And this guy's not doing that. And so their hearts were hardened against Jesus. The disciples now come on that list of guys with hard hearts. And it raises the question in my mind, is it possible for you and me as 21st century disciples, followers of Jesus... They have hard hearts. Is that possible? And so that line of thinking for me um, led me to think about what is it that might cause a heart to become hard? And I don't know, I do not have this all figured out, so I'd love to have you give some thought to this and, and think about it. But for me, as I've thought about this, there's three things that I think contribute to a heart becoming hard. A heart not being soft and open and responsive to what God wants to say and what God wants to do. And so my list of three is my list. It might not work for you. But the first thing that I thought about as I thought about this and kind of pondered and meditated on this, 
is one of the things I think that causes a hardness of heart for me. Can I personalize it this way? Maybe this will make you feel better about this. This is my list for Roy. You, you get your list. But for me, the first thing on my list is inattention to what God is doing. I'm not always alert and paying attention, attention to what God is up to, what God is doing. We sometimes experience things in our life and we call them coincidences. Some, someone has said, and I love this, coincidences are when God chooses to be incognito. He's still at work. He's still doing what he does. He's just kind of stepping back where he's not in the limelight getting the credit, if you will. And we look at it and we think, oh, that's a coincidence. One of my friends said to me some time ago, everything is a God thing. And you know, if you look at life that way, and think about life that way, that everything you experience, everything that comes into your life, everything that happens is a God thing. God is at work, and oftentimes we're inattentive, inattentive, we're not alert to what God is doing. And I think sometimes my inattention to what God is up to, what God is doing, has a tendency to kind of harden my heart a little bit. The second thing on my list is not only my inattention, but my agenda. I have my plans, my dreams, my hopes, just like the disciples did when they got out of the boat and the crowds of people were there and they were headed off for R&R. They had their expectations, their agenda. I think sometimes my agenda gets in the way because I fail to see what God is up to because my agenda has priority. Anyone else ever struggle with that? Your agenda is more important, matters the most. I think that was true for the disciples. I think it can be and has been true for me. One of the things that my wife and I struggle with right now is she's experienced some memory loss over the last three or four years. And we've, we've kind of ridden this wave of our agenda as we've prayed. Um, there was a period of time when we were simply praying, Lord, your will be done. And then we kind of shifted gears and we started praying, you know, Lord, you're bigger than memory loss. You can handle this. And so we kind of shifted gears and began very focused praying for healing, restoration of memory, recovery of memory. And so we're down the road these months, years, and we're trying to balance our agenda with God's agenda. And as we were talking about that just a day or two ago, you know, kind of the bottom line is, I don't know what God wants to do. I don't know what God wants the question in the midst of that conversation is what? Amy said it earlier. Trust. Faith. That's kind of the bottom line. Whatever the circumstances, whatever my agenda, my expectations are, and that's my third, my third word, my, my inattention to what God's doing, my agenda, my expectations, what, what I'm hoping to gain, what I'm hoping to benefit. You know, the disciples... When the disciples got together and had conversation, and the scripture records the content of their conversation, what is the focus of the disciples' expectations and conversation? They are asking the really critical, important question. <coughs> so, who's the greatest among us? <laughs> They're in the presence of King Jesus and they're arguing about who's the greatest. I just, I just find that incredibly amusing. So, my inattention to what God is up to, my agenda, my expectations, the result of that can be that my heart gets hardened just a little bit. I'm in non-responsive to what God is, is up to, what He's saying, what He wants to do. And as I've thought about that, it kind of all summarizes in one word. My inattention, my agenda, my expectations, all summarizes for me in the word pride. What was Pharaoh's problem? 
I just gave you a big clue. What was Pharaoh's problem? What was the Pharisees' problem? What was the disciples' problem? What's my problem and your problem? And oftentimes, I think, it's, again, I'll talk about me and not blame you, but oftentimes I think it's my pride that causes my heart to just get a little hard. And we need to be sensitive to that. And so then, those are the causes, the causes of a hard heart. What's the cure? That's what I want to know, what's the cure? And I don't know that I got this figured out. I've said that two or three times, right? Roy doesn't know if he's got this all figured out. But this is kind of where I am as I've thought about this, meditated on this passage, found myself really focused on those lousy disciples and how unresponsive they were, the crummy guys with their hard hearts. And if you allow yourself to pray over a portion of Scripture and meditate on it for a while, there's going to come a point where the Lord goes, uh, it's about you, not about the disciples. And so when I think about what's, what's the cure for my hard heart, the first thing that occurs to me is there's, there's an important value in learning to guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. You need to pay attention to what's going on inside. Not your physical muscle that pumps blood, right? But your heart, your core, who you are. The man or the woman that you are at your very core. Guard that. Guard it. Pay attention to it. Watch it. I oftentimes hear people say, in fact, I I heard someone say it again this week, follow your heart. Well, got to be careful with that. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, right? And so we need to guard our heart. Pay attention to your heart. Pay attention to what's happening here. Um, My pride, my self-will, guard your heart. The second thing that strikes me is pay attention to what God is doing or pay attention to what God has done. Am I paying attention to what God is doing in my life? Am I asking Him to give me a sensitivity and alertness to what He's up to and what He's doing? Paying attention to what God is up to. You know, God is up to some amazing things. He has been up to some amazing things in our church over the last many months and and years. He's been up to some stuff that we've missed, I think. And when I stop and I think about what I know about what God has done, you know, He's just doing some good stuff. But oftentimes, I'm not paying, pay pay attention. Um, I was reminded, pay attention in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells the Corinthians at least twice, if not three times in that passage in the first 13 verses in 1 Corinthians 10. He points back to the Exodus. He points back to wandering in the wilderness. And he says to the Corinthians, these things have happened for your example. If something God has done is intended to be an example to you and to me, our response ought to be what? Pay attention. Follow it. Yes. Pay attention to what God has done in Scripture. I think a lack of time in the Scriptures can oftentimes lead to a hard heart. We don't, we, we're just insensitive to what God is up to. By the way, Friday we start all over in the Gospels, right? If you're with me, you're finishing up John's Gospel this week. And we'll start all over in Matthew 1.1 on Friday morning. So, uh, time to jump back in if you got lost in the weeds, whatever. Time. Spending time in the Scriptures every single day will guard your heart from hardness. Pay attention in the Scripture. Uh, Pay attention to what God's doing in other people's lives. Have a sensitivity to what God's doing to your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. What is God up to? What's He doing? Pay attention. Ask questions. 
two of my friends, husband and wife, crashed together on their bicycles yesterday. And uh, I was in Pasadena and they were in Laverne and I was on my bike in Pasadena with two of my friends so we weren't going to be much help to them. But in the providence of God there was another friend right there to help get them home and then to the hospital. But it's oftentimes in those kind of conversations with friends like that that learning takes place and you develop a an awareness of, of what God is up to, what God is doing. Am I paying attention to what God's doing in my brothers and sisters' lives? One of the things that occurs to me is that it's possible for you and me, it's possible for us to become what I call practical atheists. We believe there's a God. We believe in Jesus. We believe that all things are possible through Him. We believe that our God specializes in doing the impossible. But when it comes to living that every day, there's a disconnect. I become a practical atheist because the way that I behave, the way that I live my life, doesn't demonstrate my faith and trust in the Lord. I develop a hardness of heart. Guard your heart. Pay attention to what God is doing. And then my third thought, because the disciples just weren't getting it, is work at putting the pieces together. And as I think about that in my life, I think prayer becomes a critical part of that. Recognizing, Lord, I don't have it all figured out. Lord, I don't have all the pieces put together. There's things I'm still struggling with. Uh, Lord, help me with this. Help me with that. Um, I think prayer is a huge part of putting the pieces together. Um, so prayer, talk to the Lord, dialogue, talk with others. Other people's life experience you can learn from, right? In fact, sometimes it's better to learn from someone else's life experience than to have to go through it yourself. I remember many years ago, I was probably in my 20s, and uh, one of my mentors at our church in Long Beach talk to me often about what he called OPE, Others Personal Experience. Learn from them so you don't have to go through it yourself. And so there's value to dialogue with others. And, and that's part of what happens, by the way, when our small groups gather. Whether you gather it in a home, whether you gather together with a couple of people in a coffee shop, uh, wherever that takes place, when, you, when believers get together, and especially when they're getting together over Scripture and talking about Scripture and sharing together, you're learning from others' experience. I think that's part of a cure for a hard heart. And then work hard at putting the pieces together, pray, talk to the Lord, dialogue, talk to others. And then third, read. Keep your focus in God's Word. Saturate your mind and your heart with God's thoughts. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, or seat, sits in the seat of the scoffers. But what? His delight is where? In the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit in his season. His leaf does not wither. Whatever he does shall prosper. Now the ungodly are not so. They are like chaff which the wind driveth away. See the value of time and energy in your life and mine. Time in the scriptures. Reading. Meditating. Learning. I think it softens the heart. So the disciples failed to put the pieces together. They didn't gain insight from the loaves. They had hard hearts. And the caution and warning for you and me today in the 21st century, guard your heart. Guard your heart against it becoming hard. Guard your heart against failure to gain insight. To understand what God is up to, what He wants to do. Guard your heart. I take comfort sometimes in a story I was told years ago. 
longtime bank president was retiring. His many, career of many, many years was coming to an end. And it was his final day in the office, and he was cleaning out his desk and getting all his things and putting them in cardboard boxes to take home. And the young man, several years younger, who was going to be taking his place, had been named his replacement to become the next president of the bank, came into the retiring president's office that would soon be his office, he came into the office and asked if, if, if he could come in and talk for a few minutes, and they talked, and the new younger president said to the old man, said, Sir, I have, I have a question. You've been here these many, many years. You've experienced great success. The bank has prospered under your leadership. Tell me, what is the secret to your success? And he said, Oh, that's easy. Good decisions. And the young man thought, good decisions. He said, I I have another another question. Um, What's the key to making good decisions? And the president said, oh, that's the easiest question of all. Bad decisions. And sadly, I think life oftentimes is like that. We learn more from times of bad decisions, even from times of failure. Um, I think as Jesus put his disciples through their times of testing, one of the things we realize is there's going to be tests for you and me on the learning curve, right? There's going to be tests for us. And God's intention, God's rationale for times of testing are what? It's all about learning. It's all about growing. It's all about becoming the men and women of God that He wants us to be. My choir director in high school had a phrase that she said often in the years that I sang in her choirs. Carlita Hutton would say to us, the measure of your intelligence is the number of times you make the same mistake. And so, Lord, help us to learn from our mistakes, our bad decisions, right? Because I've made a bunch in my life. But aren't you glad that God oversees all that? God helps us put the pieces together. And I get hope when I look at the disciples, because guess what happens after the resurrection? It all comes together. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, those guys were totally transformed. Totally transformed by the by the presence, the indwelling of God's Spirit. And I'm grateful today that if you know Jesus, the Spirit of God indwells you. And as the scripture says, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world, right? And so we got much to be grateful for. Lord, I thank you this morning for life lessons that that I've learned. I'm grateful that there's many life lessons I yet need to learn. I'm grateful that as I look at the the disciples, as they struggle to learn and struggle to put the pieces together, I can find uh, some comfort and some hope in my struggles, my challenges. And I'm so grateful for the, the promises of Scripture. I'm grateful that your Holy Spirit is our teacher. I'm grateful that your Holy Spirit will lead us into truth. He will guide us into truth. And so Lord, help us to learn the lessons. And I pray this morning especially that you would help us to guard our hearts against becoming hard, indifferent, insensitive, unresponsive to what you want us to hear. And so, Lord, I I guess I'm full circle back to how I prayed before we began this morning. That we would have hearts that are open, responsive, sensitive to you. To hear, to obey. And so, Lord, thank you for speaking into our hearts, into our lives this morning. We give you thanks together in Jesus' name. Amen.
right. We have surrendered ourselves afresh to the Lord this morning. We've lifted our hands in surrender and we just said, uh, yes, I will. Yes, I will. That's a great commitment as you walk out those doors and go into the world. we got a couple of birthdays this week. Rumor has it Irene is having a birthday on Thursday, right? Happy birthday, Irene. And uh, Cindy Hebert also has a birthday on Thursday. I mentioned Eddie and Patty's anniversary uh, today. Mario and Victoria's in Ariola's um, anniversary also is today. A couple things that are in your bulletin. Ladies, the, the Mug and Muffin event is coming up. You'll find information in your bulletin. More information at the, the uh, Connection Center back there. I uh, heard the ladies had a great time Friday night painting stuff. I'm not sure what all they painted. Um, Pauline showed me her mug. I guess the mug was a week or it was a couple weeks early. I thought the mug was on the anyway. Um, so they had a great time and looking forward to the mug and muffin event. There's also a block in your bulletin. I encourage you to to pray for the ministry of Water for Good. Our good friend Jim Hawking leads that ministry. And uh, Jim, by the way, is in Africa today, along with uh, John Allen, the new CEO of uh, Water for Good. Uh, they're in Central Africa today. And they're going to be here in Southern California the end of next month. And they've asked me to encourage anybody that has interest. Um, they'd like to have dinner with us, kind of get acquainted with John, the new CEO, and uh, share that time together around dinner. If you have interest on the 28th in the evening of doing that, please let me know so we can plan accordingly. And uh, just celebrate together the good stuff that God's doing in Africa. So celebrate this week what God wants to do in your life and in the life of our church. Will you do that? Have a great week. God bless.